Welcome to Elixir Outlaws, the hallway track of the Elixir community. Hi. Hey, Amos. Hi, Christopher. <laughs> Wait, does your mother call you Christopher? Actually, Christopher's my father. Christopher is your father. You're no. a junior? No, not at all. Oh. oh, okay. My mom doesn't even call me Christopher. Oh, yeah? Is your name Christopher or is it just Chris? My name is Christopher. It is Christopher. I think uh, if I ever meet your mother, I'm going to correct her when she calls you Chris. Let's say I'm going to say his name is Christopher. <laughs> you gave me this name. The least you could do is use it. Uh, so what do you have going on lately? Oh, man. Well, yeah, lots of travel. I've been doing lots of traveling, lots of work. I finally am caught up. I, I had lots of plates sort of spinning all at once. We discussed this, that the plates that I had spinning that were on fire. And I was yes. trying to put out fires that were on plates that were spinning. Did you get all the fires put out? No, I dropped all the plates. Oh, well. In sort of a catastrophic way. Like, a bunch <laughs> of things ended up having, like, I ended up, like, really screwing up a bunch of scheduling stuff and whatever. But now, I'm mostly pretty good. So, I'm, I'm mostly caught up now. Mostly caught up. I've been spending more time on the hammock, just trying to relax. <sighs> good hammock time. Yeah, I, I feel you. I, I went back on another Desert Vision quest. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because I just I needed it needed a break. How'd that go? Tell me about it, that. It was great. The way home was totally awesome. So while I'm at the desert, the night before I'm supposed to leave, I have a I have a tent. I'm sleeping out by myself, and it starts pouring, and that rain turned into snow. And then on the way home, it there were 65 mile an hour wind gusts all the way through New Mexico and Oklahoma. We got to. Kansas and went through a hailstorm and then two tornadoes. <laughs> wow. It was pretty awesome. Not just one, but two, two tornadoes. Yeah, there, was, there was one out to the south on our right hand side. We were heading east. And uh right after we get past it, we watch it kind of like break up right alongside of us. We were moving just fast enough to to have missed it. And then one started to come down like on the road behind us. We watched it coming down because <laughs> I had a friend that went with me. He took some pictures of it. I'll, I'll have to get them to you. You missed uh, your calling as like a storm chaser. You need one of those armored vehicles. Yeah, not me. He said that would be an amazing job. And actually, I, I found that out about him. He is a, a certified weather spotter. What is what is that? Well, what even so, what even is that? So uh, they actually like, I feel like I'm a certified weather spotter. I think I, I can, can look outside and spot all kinds of weather. Right. I can look outside. I've been known to just look outside and be like, you know what's out there right now? Rain. Right. <laughs> See? I think, I think, yeah, I don't know how long this class is. It's probably real short. But, yeah. But, um, yeah, this they, is like, this is like getting for... an A plus cert. You show up and you're like, that's a computer. <laughs> I paid my money. Give me my cert. Give yeah. me my uh, job at Best Buy now, please. Apparently, the common person can't recognize a tornado. Hmm. I don't know. I think I'm pretty good at it. Yeah, I feel that, like you see that big spinning thing that looks kind of like a cloud, and there's stuff flying out of it. That's well, it might a be like a uh, what's the small version of tor- of a tornado? A dust, a dust, dust devil, devil. Dust a devil. dust devil. <laughs> <laughs> that right there's a uh, that's actually a dust devil. Yeah, if you if you watch if you get weather warnings, they'll say like spotted by law enforcement or or like when certified they, weather spotter, or it'll just say like a reported by a person of the community or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, I feel like I feel like um, tornado, not I, hard to miss. 
Yeah, yeah, I would think so. In fact, like... Unless it's small. If it's really tiny... To, it's more impressive if you do miss it somehow. <laughs> like, that's a job wherein not being able to do the job is more impressive than doing the job. There were there were some clouds that went through my backyard and picked up my cow and threw it over the neighbor's is house. Is dust devil a uh, provincial term? Like, is that like calling all sodas Coke? Uh, maybe. I don't know. Or is it actually a class of thing? It might be just the name that people call it, like like right a roller. There's your like category a- three twister, which <laughs> are upgraded from a dust devil. <laughs> <laughs> is it a word like a roly poly? Like that's not the real name of the bug, but it's like oh, it's like calling something a frisbee. Yeah, or a Kleenex. Just a term of art, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, totally. Yeah, Kleenex. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, we're coming out with a new line of Dust Devils next year, actually. Oh yeah, yeah, Dust Devil uh, uh, V two. Sweet, like the vacuum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> High quality elixir <laughs> podcasting right here. <laughs> it's been a minute. Yeah. I made a joke about not getting an A-plus cert to apply at Best Buy or whatever. That's because I did that. <laughs> I was like, and I got turned down. Too qualified. No. Well, yeah, first of all, they were like, you didn't need an A-plus cert to apply to work here. And then second of all, we don't, we're not going to hire you. Ugh. I needed a second job at the time. So I was like, this seems like a thing I could do. Deliver pizzas. No. Oh, that's what. No. Uh, that was not on the list. I mean, that's fine. Did. I mean, I'm happy that people do that. It's a job yeah, people can that's do. That's what but... my, my dad did for tips, basically, like get big nice. tips. He said it was yeah. a good way to make some extra cash. Yeah. No, I believe it. So what do you have going on in your Elixir world? Oh, those are big eyes. Maybe I should answer I, first. Um, <laughs> right now, it's like I have like a I have a real Sophie's Choice paradox of just all the projects I could be working on that I want to work on. Like, they're all things that I'm really excited about. That I've got bouncing around in my head, but the problem is, is like choosing is the thing that we've talked about before with work, right? This is the, this is the secret to work is choosing to work and like choosing what you work on is not really the real choice. It's like choosing what not to work on because every choice you make to work on something is an implicit choice to not work on something else that's less important. Right. You make way more choices of what not to do than what to do. Yeah. And this is, we're in this phase where it's like, I've got so many ideas of stuff that I want to pursue that I can't pursue any of them because i'm you know i'm too preoccupied or like too excited about all of them so i'm kind of like doing this thing where i'm trying to prioritize and then delegate which i'm bad at i am bad at delegating i have to delegate more that's a tough skill to get you have to let go yeah you have to you have to be ready to let go of the things that are fun to you right and then you get you know essentially you get managed out of being able to do all the things that are fun to you because you become the manager. Yeah, because you get Peter principled into a job that you hate. <laughs> <laughs> and taken away from the thing that you actually enjoyed and were good at. And had practiced for years to get good at. <laughs> Makes all the sense in the world. I love it. Uh, yeah. So what do, you, what do you do to practice to get good at things? I just, I don't know, just like write code and read books and stuff. Write code and read books and stuff. That's Yeah. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Done. Success. No, I think I don't have any I don't have any good skills about learning to get better at things. I um other than just to do them a lot. And then and to all and to also find find a project that's outside your comfort zone mm-hmm. enough to like actually stretch you a little bit. You know, learn a thing that you've not really learned before. Is that how Raft Raft started? Yeah, a little bit. Your, your, a little your Raft bit. implementation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit. It was motivated by a bunch of things, but yeah, that was that was part of it. It's like this this seems really hard. I'm gonna go for it. 
because it was, you know, and now I, now I look back on it and I'm like, it was hard. And I'm, but now I feel like I have all these skills for reasoning about systems and for doing other things. Like, so you, you learn a lot of stuff. It's like good to find projects that are outside your comfort zone, but it's also like, how do you budget time to do that? And especially if like you're, if you're lucky enough, like I am to find a job where my skills are sort of always being pushed a little bit, like where I need to be learning about something new all the time, then I get that sort of for free. And I'm really like privileged and fortunate to have that. But at the same time too, like it means that when I'm on my spare time and I'm still thinking about these things, like I have so many other little ideas of like stuff I didn't have time to do during the day or like couldn't justify doing during the day. And now I want to go work on those things and I don't have time for all of them. So figuring out the right level of things to work on, figuring out the things to work on that also like dovetail into your longer term goals. Like what are the things that you want to be doing? Like where do you want to go in your career or your life or whatever? And finding projects that like dovetail into that well is important. And then also sort of fulfill you, you know, like those are all, that's all complexity. And then doing time management on top of all that. I think the time management is what ends up killing me. Well, the fact that there's too many things that I want to do, Mm -hmm. like it's just not possible. So I have to prioritize. And at this point in my life, a lot of the priority is what's going to put dinner on the table. Right. (laughs) Right. And and what's going to take care of my kids. So since I don't have a lot of time when I, whenever I, am trying to learn. I do like to read books. Um, but one of the things that I do is in the small, I'll try to implement something that maybe I've done a few times. So I know how to do it pretty quickly. And then I just try to do it in a new and different way. Mm-hmm. Even if I think it's going to be a dumb way, mm-hmm. just to try to push whatever language I'm looking at into new corners and make my mind go, oh, why, why would somebody do it this way? Mm-hmm. Or is there even a reason to do it with this way? Or is, or at least now I know some pain points that whenever I see somebody going down that kind of path, I can say, "Hey, here's why you shouldn't." Instead of, "Well, you shouldn't," because I've never done it that way. Right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and that's how you have a real conversation about these sort of informal ways that we do things, right? Otherwise, you're talking about intuition. You're not talking about any sort of hard one things. Mm-hmm. And the hard one experience is always going to sort of trump the intuition. Yeah. Well, I think after you've done something for a really long time that you get to a point where it's intuition, but it comes from that hard one experience. It just gets yeah. hard to explain. You're like, uh, because I... Because I feel this have, way. Yeah. I've done this kind of thing a bunch of times, and I don't remember all the bad ways <laughs> right, to, right, right, right. to get here. Yep. I think that's a very accurate way to put it. I don't know always how to inculcate that in myself. And like, I don't always know how to like practition that myself Mm -hmm. but i think that's like a worthwhile thing if you can do that yeah like implement something using an agent why would you do that why would you do that (laughs) you're a monster (laughs) i'm sure somebody one day will show me a actually uh we don't use agents on elixir anymore all agents to be gen servers because agents are really like bringing over uh oo patterns into elixir and uh we don't do oo patterns anymore because object-oriented programming is bad amos (laughs) we all decided that agents aren't good anymore they shouldn't have even been included in the language you you heard it here first elixir 1.9 agents (laughs) just removed (laughs) (laughs) you ready to get an email about that guy Please. Yeah, I'm I'm ready. Bring it on. 
listen, all I really care about is what kind of barbecue do you like? Yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> we'll just leave that right there. Oh, man. <laughs> we'll just leave the barbecue right here on the table. But seriously, though, how much Duke's mayonnaise do you put in your pimento cheese? Because that's actually, <laughs> that, like, asking the real questions here for a second. You got to put that on there until it squeezes out far enough when you put no, I'm the... sorry, uh, sir, you've been found guilty of using Hellman's mayonnaise <laughs> inside of your pimento cheese. Pimento cheese sandwich. Uh, but seriously, have you had pimento cheese? It is like so I good. I have. I have. So good. I hated it as a kid, and then as I got older, I was like, this is good stuff. Why did I not like this? Because right, it didn't exactly. look like all the other cheese. Exactly. It had it looks, weird, it weird stuff. Weird. It does. But it's not. I do not like pimento loaf. Though. I don't even know what that that is. It's like the same thing. I mean, I know instead it, of I'm cheese, kidding. it's I meat. know what it is, but yeah, oh. it's not not yeah, good. Yeah, it's, it's like not spam spam with pimentos mm. floating no, no, in no, no, no. it. No, 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 it's not good. <laughs> we were so sidetracked by that. Mission accomplished. <laughs> I also like to read code. Yeah, I think that's a practiced art, and it's hard. Mm-hmm. I've been trying for for like ten years to read code, and sometimes I just get. Like, I just can't do it. it. Like, I feel like I'm getting nothing out of it. And then a week later, I'll do something. And I'm like, why did I do that? Oh, that's what I saw in that code that I read. And then I, I like, I guess I internalize it, not realizing that I'm internalizing it. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way to, to learn. Recently, I've been reading, like, I was reading um, the Broadway adapters that are out there and looking into using Broadway for a few things. So that was really helpful. And then I... I implemented it using Broadway, and then I implemented it just using Gen Stage. what I needed to do, just to try to, I guess, understand myself more of what Broadway's doing, even though I'd look through the code mm-hmm. underneath the covers. So that was an interesting learning process for me. I, I'm still learning through that, I think, but I had done very little with Gen Stage, just a little bit, and so I wanted to see what, what Broadway's bringing to the table. What do you think about it so far? There was a, definitely a lot less code that I had to write in the Broadway version. Which as, seems like the goal. Yeah. Seems like the yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. And I would say that the Gen Stage version that I did probably did not have the same same level of quality that I think came out of the Broadway one. There were mm-hmm. there were features that I just didn't get to in the Gen Stage version. So I so far I think that, that Broadway is a, a big win for what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to get pictures off of a camera. Okay. And then process them. Okay. And then actually I'm it's looking to me like I'm gonna have multiple Broadway type things because I'll batch some sure. I have to get these these images off this camera over a period of time. Like a MJPEG type thing. Mm-hmm. And then process them in some way and then when i get a certain number of them so the batching thing is really nice in broadway like that that's just super easy to do and then send those over to another broadway set of process things that's sitting there and that's got to get batched and there's another like taking a bunch of these packets of so many images and building up and to larger packages of so many images and sending them on to another process because i have to interact with outside elixir things to process these along the way so it's a pretty good sized pipeline so i'm gonna have lots of these broadway pieces stages stages yes that do okay yeah cool that's rad so i'm i'm pretty excited about it yeah that's really really cool the biggest thing that i'm having trouble with right now is timing 
which is always the thing when I've ever had anything that needs to be pretty time sensitive in Elixir. Right. Like I need it to happen at this interval, no matter what. So you need to be well under that interval, basically. Yeah. 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 So that might actually end up splitting things out into even more stages. <laughs> like maybe I'm not going to process the image in the first part. It may not even be a stage. I'll just have something that spins and grabs images mm-hmm. without even being necessarily a gen server or anything like that. I might just write a looping function. Yeah. Well, and you, you'll probably need to figure out whether sharding your work into multiple queues is actually useful or not. Yeah. Because realistically, you're still going to be beholden to Little's Law, right? Mm-hmm. So there's an upper bound on like how much capacity you can actually do, no matter how you break the queues down. Mm-hmm. It just sort of depends on like how parallelizable the work is. So you brought up Little's Law. Yes. And it's, it's a little equation, too. It's only it's got, got three, three variables. variables. Okay, yeah. so since mm-hmm. you brought it up, you, you tell us what those variables are. Do you remember? Yes, I remember. (laughs) We've talked about this. This is boring. No one wants to hear about this. No, we should just at least say what the law is. Uh, Okay. Little, uh, what's the, like, the succinct way to explain it? Little's law allows you, well, (laughs) so what it basically says is that the number of things in the queue, in a queue, is equal to the average, literally the average, like the median time they spend in the queue and multiplied by, like, the arrival rate. So, yep. like, that's an intuitive thing to think about, right? Like, the, the number of things you have in a queue is based on, like, how long they wait, how long everything waits around in the queue times the amount of things that show up to the queue. There you go. It's right? really, like, it should be intuitive. And then when somebody shows it to you and then they're like, and that expands to the larger queue outside of that. Because usually yep. you have queues inside of queues. Yep. And you can just keep expanding this out. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that that's the other magic thing. There's a couple magic things. So, so first of all, it's really important because everybody gets this this part wrong when they start doing when they like learn about this stuff. Little's law says nothing about like latency or optimization of like speed. It's capacity. It's just about capacity, which is also why you can get away with using you know average, which is also really great. Like you can get away with using a median. Like you don't have to care about tail latencies and all that kind of stuff for capacity. Like you do have to care about tail capacities. Like that is an that's an important thing. But as it turns out, like you can just be, it's sort of like naive Bayes, right? Like you can just be naive about this and just treat everything as sort of these, it's like these averages, which is great. Uh, it makes it really, really nice. But the other really important thing is that Little's Law works both in the small and in the large, right? Because everything in a computer is a queue. Like you can model basically every single thing that happens is a queue. Uh, it's a queue of work that needs to, to, to start taking place. Like whether it's a web server like taking in requests like typically the way that works is you have some queue of requests coming in and you have some thread pool or some set of processes somewhere ready to like accept those things and it pulls things off the queue and accepts them and whatever like you can and even if that's like there's implementation details on underneath that that don't use things like don't use words like thread pools it's still a queue you can still model it as a queue you Mm -hmm. know processors are queues like that it's like all it's queues all the way down. I mean, the beam is just a bunch of queues. Right. And what's cool is you can, yeah, like model like the beam and look at the queues inside the beam, but you can also extend that all the way up to your whole application or to a whole system. And the same rules all still apply. And like the ways that they join together all still apply. 
Right. Because you can also then start to make some assumptions. Like you can start to say that like your arrival rate is probably equal to the departure rate of the previous queue, like stuff like that. Or like you can start to like join these things together. Like let's say I'm a service that's calling you and you're a service. That means like our two queues are like joined together. Like I take in requests and I send them to you. Right. 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 Which means that like my queue is attached to your queue. Mm -hmm. And what you can end up doing is like you can start to make assumptions about like, well, my like departure rate, my arrival rate and departure rate, my latencies are going to be attached to your latencies and to like your the rate at which you can return things to me. And so we can you can start to model that. And so you can actually start to use it to like find bottlenecks in your system. But there's also like a bunch of other laws at, at work here, right? You have diminishing returns on how parallelizable any, like how much gain you can get out of parallelizing any sort of operation. Mm -hmm. So you can split your queues out and all that, but like you don't get 100% utilization, even if you like fully utilization is the wrong word to use. But you don't get like, in theory, right? If some operation takes one second and you can do two operations at the same time, the entire total time that you spend doing work should be half a second, right? Or no, if one operation, it should still be yeah, one, yeah, yeah. Yeah. One, second, be one second, but you should do double the work. Because you're doing one, yeah, you're doing, right. instead of taking two seconds to do all the work, it'll do, it'll still just be done in one second. So that's not right. actually how it works. Right. Because there's overhead in doing all these other computations. So you get some percentage of that, which is like Amdahl's law and all that kind of stuff. Like you can go calculate that and mm -hmm. calculate like an upper bound. So there's upper there there are like upper bounds to how useful like splitting out all that work can be into multiple queues. And at the end of the day, like if the whole system has to sort of fork join back together at the end of it, you're still going to be beholden to the to the longest thing, right? In which case you might like be not be able to be underneath like whatever your threshold needs to be in order for your stuff to work correctly or whatever. So, yeah, you have to do a lot of like modeling with these things. Yeah, I do a lot of a lot of paperwork whenever <laughs> yeah. I'm doing well, this and like luckily the math is easy yes the math is really easy so you can just sort of like attach all these things together and then go for it if you passed algebra i think you can you can utilize little's law yeah basically yeah yeah no derivatives it's, here no no no, no sequences no. in series mm -mm. <laughs> you do you can also hand wave around the probabilities and statistics bits of it mm -hmm. for the most part it's probably like good to go learn those things but you can mostly like hand wave over the probability and statistics bits of it. Yeah. You don't actually have to know what a poison like process is <laughs> and all these kinds of things. Like you don't have to know all that stuff. Poisson. I think, I think po it helps poisson. you better, better articulate your findings. If you, you know, some of that underneath and better understand them yourselves. I, I think, you know, it's the same thing whenever you're writing software, like I can use Elixir for a really long time and be fairly successful. But if I mm -hmm. start to understand the underlying system and how Elixir implements it and even how the VM, you know, stores and moves things around in memory, the, the further down that stack that I understand what's going on, the better my code is at the top of the stack, right? Yeah. And there's yeah. the Beam book that is available on, on GitHub for free that talks about a lot of this, that underlying stuff. So it's a good way to get down in there and, and see what's going on. Yeah. And I, I, I use I use the decompiler once in a while, too, and just look through the ASM. Yeah. I don't often dig into, you know, it's like we dig into the internals of the beam every so often, but you know, something that's really interesting is like, and that stuff's really good to know, and it's really, really useful, but so much of that is like 
very small optimizations that you can make or like very small like micro optimizations you can make over your already optimized code to gain a few more microseconds out of it or whatever. Mm-hmm. most of the time the really limiting things are all going to be in your application codes like bottlenecks that you've created somewhere that someone's created for you in a library somewhere your database query is slow or you're not like using enough cowboy connections or you know yeah. your max connections is set way too low or your hackney pool is set like <laughs> way too low because like the default for hackney is like way 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 too low so you know you got to go tweak those kinds of things to avoid those sorts of bottlenecks. But the nice thing is like all the logic still applies. Like all the queuing theory stuff is like still applies to right. all those things. Which is Yeah, nice. I, well as soon as you say pool, like oh yeah, definitely a queue somewhere. Yep. Yeah, exactly. This is the book I use all the time. I went and grabbed this off my shelf, but it's called The Art of Computer Systems Performance Analysis. It's very dry. But it is sort of and it's it's a thick, dry textbook. But it's it's good. It has good stuff in it. Um, I'm sure there's better ones out there, but I don't really know what they all are but there's a whole bunch of stuff in here about like queuing theory and probability and how to benchmark these things and how to observe them and what to do with all that stuff it's useful although a good majority of it is very much like targeted at cpu architectures and stuff like that which isn't as applicable in like most people's lives but it does have a very there's like i think it's like chapter two or something like that has something like 30 bullet points, maybe maybe less, I don't remember, about how to do performance evaluation. And it's all awesome. Like, those are great. They're really, really important to read. Can I just buy chapter two? No, probably not. <laughs> when you say textbook, I'm like, oh, that's going to be not cheap. <laughs> yeah, I think I got mine used, but it was still probably expensive. Because I think, well, I don't know. This one's from, let me see. I mean, I think the original was published, like... Long while ago. The good thing is, is you know, we're still using x86, so nothing's changed. Oh, that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, this was published in '91. Yeah, so nothing's changed since then. <laughs> I was gonna see if I had it. I don't know. It's one of nope. those ones that nope. they. It's it's one that you get if you get an actual computer science degree. But I got mine used for for not that much. Side note: I did just buy like five textbooks, and I'm really hype about it. Nice. What'd you buy? They're all algorithms books. <laughs> They're all advanced at data structures and algorithms books. I'm Sweet. super excited. Because <laughs> I love that stuff. I have found that I like going through that stuff on paper and drawing pictures a lot. Yeah, that's that's always useful. Just did that yesterday, talking about algorithms. But maybe one day I'll get through Piftus by drawing some pictures. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have to read that book. It's going to have to finish it. As soon as I finish the uh, Behind Human Air. That... Oh, that Fred recommended? Yeah, Fred. Friend of the show, Fred. You want to talk about that book? Tell me about that book. Is tell, it good? Tell you about that book. Uh, well, I haven't made it that far because when I went out to the desert, I said I'm not going to do any of this. Just get away from technology thought completely. I didn't get rid of the thought. I just <laughs> got rid of the, the sources, really. Now, so far, it's pretty good. I've already started to internalize parts of it, and I'm not even that far into it, about you know just the thinking about observability of my system mm-hmm. in general, because that's the thing about if you have all humans doing something, a process, it's pretty observable. And if there's a problem at the beginning of that process or somewhere in the middle that you can fix before it gets to the end and is way bigger of a problem... Mm-hmm. 
a lot of times people will fix that along the way. And you often, even in hindsight, don't necessarily see the very first problem on that started because you only see the one that, that either catastrophically failed or finally fixed the issue. But in a computer system, since they're sometimes largely non-observable what's going on inside, at least easily, right? those failures can, those little failures that could have been corrected a long time ago build up to the catastrophic failure. And because right. the processes are going so fast, they can build up even faster than it would if, if people were doing those processes. So it started to make me look at the code I've been writing already and think, how how am I going to be able to look into this and see what's going on and should there should the software have some kind of dashboard that gives it some observability to operators and and what does that what do they care about what pieces of this can lead to me preventing error Mm -hmm. so that's pretty cool i mean the book talks about everybody wants to automate things whenever they do see human error to try to eliminate it and how that's not necessarily a solution, but right. I've already been at that point. Like I write software and see people writing software. And when somebody tells me that the plane that I'm getting on is fly by wire and all done with software, sometimes there's a, there's a little part of me that says, Oh geez. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I think that the, the observability thing is, is fascinating to me. And also like, how do you, because how do you provide insight back to operators, right? I gave a talk at Elixir Conf EU however long ago now, but it just came out recently. The audio quality on it, it's not great. It's like worse than this podcast, which is saying something. <laughs> but th- that's really the thing, right? Is like the, the, the thing that actually just sort of defends your system against the majority of failures is human beings, right? And because human beings can make all these sort of smart decisions. And so a big part of and I haven't read the book, so maybe this is like wrong, or maybe it's counter to the what the book is saying. But we find a lot of value in trying to figure out how to alert human beings that there is a problem and then provide them easy ways to start determining like what the causes of that problem are and then figure out like how do we get involved in the remediation steps. And there's certain amounts of there are a certain amount of smart things you can do, like load shedding or graceful degradation or whatever during different types of failures. But a lot of times it's like, yeah, you need to be able to see what's causing those things so that both the system can start to heal and you can start to like get involved in the remediation process, especially for catastrophic failure. Like for failure that it's like multiple things have gone wrong and now multiple things are out of sync with each other and you've got to sort of try to figure out how to heal that again. But it's tricky and it involves like, building and structuring your code in such a way where you have all these hooks and all these traces and all these things like inside of it. Like it looks really weird because none of that, if you're really doing observability correctly, like there's no magic that you can employ that will, that will just do all that for you. You have to get in there and start to do it yourself and start to say like, this is stuff I care about. So I'm going to trace this function or whatever. So how do you decide the stuff you care about? Because any kind of metric or log message or any status of a system or anything. What I found out is that I can get a pretty good start on that stuff. But then the metric that that I really want is always the one that I don't have until after I wanted it, right? Mm-hmm. So after you have failure, you need to look into what things happened and if you can add observability to 
to those things. Yeah. But how do you decide up front? Like, is there, is it any better for you that, or does that sound right up your alley? Of exactly what happens. No, I, mean, I think everybody deals with this and you have to, especially when they're starting out and you have, you have to gain an intuition about this stuff. You have to do it a lot. But the other thing, and I think this is the thing that most applications and most companies don't have and don't do because it's not in their wheelhouse to do it is you have to have goals. Your service and your application has to have goals. And I don't mean like goals, like business goals, although it needs those as well. It needs goals like we're going to be available this percentage of requests. Like this percentage of requests will be good requests. We will always, we will service in a quarter, you know, 99.9% of all requests with some data. And you need to categorize like what some data means. Does some data mean like the integrity of the data is correct? Like it's, you're always doing good reads from the database or can like some of that data be stale? Like you have to define those things and then you have to work to accomplish those goals. Right. And, and also figure out what's going to cause you to violate those goals. And if you right. don't have the, I mean, cause, cause what ends up happening is most companies start out and they're like, we don't have any metrics. So let's, mo- let's like measure everything. And so <laughs> then you measure everything and then you like bog your system down with all the metrics. I, and I was getting ready to say, that's what I see a lot of people getting rid of metrics that they do have. Cause their performance just is. Yeah abysmal well or you sample them so heavily that they don't tell you anything so you need to be able to again like get into your system and start to dial up the sampling and dial or dial it down or whatever get 80 percent of traces instead of five percent of traces or whatever Mm -hmm. you need to be able to like adjust that on the fly so that's a problem but i mean the problem is is like if you go in and start measuring everything well that's a pretty clear sign i mean I'm of the opinion that measuring everything is probably better than measuring nothing for most companies. Yeah. Only because, like, you need something. Like, you want something to go on. At least you're measuring anything at all at that point. Even if it's a bunch of stuff that's wrong or that you don't need. But I think you really have to set goals. You have to say, like, we are going to service... We need to be able to service a 1,000 users on this box or a 1,000 requests or whatever. Like, whatever mm-hmm. that thing needs to be able to do. We have to be able to do that. That's the goal for this quarter. And maybe, and those goals are going to change all the time. But it's like, you got to be able to do that. And your tail latencies need to be, I don't know, 99th percentile needs to be under 250 milliseconds for this month or whatever, like for this quarter, like for some time period. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what our goal is. Okay. And then you have to work to accomplish that goal. Like, so, so the metrics that you pick are based on the goal that you have. At least they're informing that to start. Yeah, like you have goals and objectives for your service. Maybe you've got some application, right? And that application's doing whatever. It's selling widgets or like, you're like, you're building your like pimento cheese website, right? (laughs) And you're going to service requests to, let's say, like a really, really small amount of traffic. Like you're going to have like a thousand requests a minute. And you're going to be available Available meaning like good requests, the ratio of good requests to total requests is going to be like not uptime, like not minutes or seconds, but like your availability, because that's like a a useless metric. Like the amount of time it's been up doesn't matter. It's like how many good requests did you service is what matters. Right. Let's say you set a really low availability of like 99%. So 99% of all of your requests need to be good. Okay. Like they need to serve data. Well, what does that mean? Right. Like, what does good data mean? Does good data mean that it's good for in the past five minutes? Well, then you could like cache everything. Right. Like then you can like start to like figure that out. And then maybe you have an objective that is like how many 
requests come out of cash. Well, for this quarter, we want to serve 15%. We only want to serve 15% stale requests, right? I'm making these numbers up. Like you have to work out what these numbers are going to be. Yeah, they're but different for those, everybody. And then you go measure that stuff. And a lot of like the availability and tail latency stuff, like most people measure that anyway. That's already, you can already kind of do that. That's like pretty good. Those are pretty much givens. So like you go measure those and then you might measure like how many reads are we doing from, from the cache? Like how many reads are coming out of this or that or whatever. And then you have a whole host of things that you probably care. So, and to be clear, those metrics are what you're going to alert on. Like if you start to violate your goals, you start to alert on those things and you start to page people and you're like, we're dipping below this. We can't, we cannot meet our goals. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they're goals. Like you may not always want to page, but you might want to create tickets for them. Like you might want to like you need to surface that somehow. Like you're violating your goals. Like what can you go do about it? I mean, in certain cases, like maybe you can't. There's no remediation possible, and so you just open a ticket, but you don't page anybody because there's no reason to get a human involved. Mm-hmm. But like you need to surface it somehow. It depends on how immediate and what the remediation steps are for the problem. But you surface those. You surface those goals or the violations of those goals and that's going to drive like the metrics that you do. And that's alerting. So you're talking about alerting based on your goals at the very end. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's where this behind human error might talk is that the observability of the system is that maybe before you're violating their, your goals, there's something in that process before that. If you have that observable, there's a failure way early. That's causing you to end up here. Right. At the end of failing to meet your goals, and maybe it could be fixed before you fail to meet your goals, if the system could alert earlier. So what? Yeah. Like, how do you figure out back? And that's where they're talking about root cause analysis. When you say, well, the book you know is talking about human error a lot, but root cause analysis. Once you get to human error, people stop looking. But, right, right. But right, really, right. really, that's because hindsight says, well, yeah, that was stupid that you did that, but they weren't trying to make that decision with all of these inputs. And maybe there was something even before that decision that could have prevented, you know, so. Right. Well, I think, we have complex systems. Yeah. Well, so the observability part, too, is is like there's probably a whole host of metrics that you also care about that don't matter at all when it comes to violating, like, your goals or whatever. Like, ecto queries, right? You actually don't care from an alerting standpoint if your ecto queries start to, like, skyrocket. Because, like, you want to alert on stuff that users see. Right. In that case, it would be, you know, our requests are we're not 99 percent available anymore. The root cause might be that the database got slow because we were running some like long running migration or something like that. You know, what I mean, like there's some other cause that's happening and that you need to surface and find some way to surface. And in that case, it's like now you have all these like you you want all these like all this visibility into the running system at that point. Right. Right. Those are metrics you capture because they're going to help you debug, right? So you might start start to capture ecto queue times and ecto query times, and you might start to trace things, and you might start to look at like other running systems and see how they're doing, and like you you get all these hooks into it. And so in certain cases, you want to be able to dial up the all the signals, right? Like you want to be able to say like, okay, go get me all these traces and tell me like what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. But just like stock capturing all that stuff, I mean, some of it's fine. Like the Ecto stuff is like maybe a bad example. Like you probably just want to capture that all the time. But it's not a leading signal that you're going to like use to, that you're going to use to look alert on necessarily. It is going to be a point where you can start to be like, why is this going on? Oh, right. It's because this database query 
is starting to take a really long time. Why is the database query starting to take a long time? Well, it's because this is happening or whatever. And you, you might have like multiple layers of these observable things that you can start right. to do. And yeah. And I think like the, the sort of like trying to like do remediation ahead of time, like that's, that's definitely a thing that starts to happen. Again, though, thinking through your goals is like really important, right? Cause if you're dependent on, if you're dependent on a database to service, I mean, first of all, 99% uptimes, not that high in the big scheme of things it is for like, I guess a lot of like new companies and new applications cause they don't define those things and then they don't right. measure them well. And a lot of people can't tell you what their availability goals even are if they have them. <laughs> right. True. And so, but it's like, but it's not that high. Like that's a lot of failed requests a quarter or a month. But if you have those things then you start to think about what are the things that could cause us to violate this? And you could only really think about those things when you've defined the goal. Like you, it's like much harder in a vacuum to sit there and be like, what are all the things that could go wrong? Well, it's like, well, the whole data center could like, you know, you're out West and the whole thing could be underneath a fault and you could just like, you know, it could fall into the, into a volcano somewhere. It's like, that is a thing that could happen. It's not likely, right. but you know, like, what are the actual things that are going to cause you to violate some goal that you have, some objective that you have, or like violate an actual agreement that you have with some, you know, consumer of your application or your service, right? Like what are those things? Well, you can only start to think through all those once you know what you're, what you're actually optimizing for. And then you can start to figure out how am I going to know if that thing starts to go poorly? How am I going to figure that out? And how am I going to debug that? And how am I going to diagnose it? And also what am I going to do when it fails? Can we fall back to a cache? Can we hit a different service? Can we do something else that like allows us to, to maintain our, our goals? It allows you to have these conversations, right? Right. And craft more interesting solutions to them. But it has to start with you actually defining stuff. Well, and I think this is also too where people like get really like hung up on like micro benchmarking. The only thing that really like micro benchmarks are cute. They're fun. It feels good. And it feels it's fun. It's like it's really, really nice. I shaved one millisecond off. But like it so doesn't matter. <laughs> right. <laughs> like for so many things, like it just doesn't matter. And in fact, the only thing that matters is what happens when your system is loaded. You got us, especially in, in Erlang, more than in other runtimes I've worked in. So many problems do not manifest until you actually like load the CPU up and you really load up real traffic on this box and see what happens. And so you have to find ways to saturate the box and then really see what it does. And but it turns out like if your goal is like 250 millisecond tail latencies for this API that you have and you only expect your maximum load, like if your goal is to be able to do that and only do like a thousand requests a minute, mm-hmm. just stop. Once you like, you like, you don't need to optimize beyond that goal. The micro optimizations start to happen because like you haven't defined the goal. You're starting to plan for like 20 X that scale and way lower latencies. And it's like, that's a waste of time. Like, don't do that. Like you've met your goal and then some, right. You want to have some like buffer in there and you want to actually capacity plan and figure out if I'm running this on two boxes, what happens if one of them fails and we fail over and all of a sudden we're consuming all the traffic. And like, you start to do those sorts of mental things, right? Mm -hmm. That's just good systems thinking. So there, you can also optimize for the wrong thing to the point that it's a detriment to the thing that you wanted. Right, yeah. Right. So, and and I've seen this happen is that overall, I have a system that, let's say you want to be able to have 250 millisecond tail latency, and 
you optimize this one thing in the system, not even looking at that goal. You're like, oh, this part is slow, so I'm going to optimize it in that micro level. But how you optimize it is maybe you parallelize it across all of your CPUs, and then it it starts to burn up enough CPU time that the actual getting you to that 250 milliseconds, you're like, yeah, look, I shaved off 50 milliseconds on processing all of this, but I killed all of our CPUs, and now we're at 500 millisecond tail latency. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and a lot of times, like the tools that you'll use to discover that stuff, like I'm a big fan of um, eFlame, I think is the name of the library, but it generates flame graphs for Erlang. It's it's a really good library and it uses like Erlang's tracing stuff to do it all. It's, it's really rad. But if you just run that in sort of a naive way, it can show you useful information, but it's not going to show you what happens when you load up your system and you discover a bottleneck, right? Like that bottleneck may not be there if you're just running a single thing against your and so you might go optimize not the actual leading problem like you might not you might not go optimize the catalyst for what is actually the the failure and waiting right Right. so you have to develop these tools and like intuitions to build to like figure out how to saturate your system which is actually pretty hard in a lot yes. of systems. Yes, it is. Like you have to invest. Sometimes you need a lot of other systems to saturate your one system. Yeah. <laughs> well, like one of the things that we see all the time is CPU, CPU problems with the beam. Like if your CPU starts to get taxed, like the beam can't keep up with all the processes that now are getting scheduled mm-hmm. and the run queues back up. And then it just like the problem, like completely like feeds back in on itself. And now nothing can keep up. And so like your average, your, you know, little law kicks in, like your average latencies go up, things like build up in the queue. You can't get things out of the queue fast enough, you know? And so you have to like have remediation for that. Right. And you have to find those bottlenecks that happen when you saturate the thing. And like when the CPU is utilized and can't keep up with all the processes that need, that it needs to be scheduling. And then decide how are you going to handle that? Am I going to restart everything and throw all that away or... What, right. what can I do? Well, and that's the thing is like, that's again, going back to your goals, right? How do you load shed? Can you load shed? Well, I mean, you have to load shed at some right. point, right? But like, what are you going to do to load shed? Can you handle that failure gracefully so that, and while also shedding load, like just read it out of an, read the result out of an ETS cache instead of doing something expensive. Like if the database becomes a problem, taking load off the database helps the database come back up, right? Right. And so like, how can you do that? And do less, like spend less CPU so that you're not bottlenecking your system now or whatever. And that that's one really nice thing that I've enjoyed in the beam is being able to do that load shedding at very specific levels that I, I had hard times doing that in other languages. Cause you know, I have a server or gen server sitting there and it's queues starting to back up and I can choose like, well, this type of gen server, if it's queues start to back up, I can just flush them and, yeah ignore everything and move on. But at that like specific type of data or process or whatever I'm trying to do instead of, uh, well at the system, I'm going to have to start blocking people at a request level. Yeah. Instead I can choose which part of my system can load shed and which doesn't. Well, it turns out like every system has to do that at some level, like whether you're using go and gRPC and Kubernetes and what, and as much YAML as you can jam into that thing, like you can't, (laughs) your, your system still has to figure all that out, right? Like it still has to do all that stuff. And 
that's one of the great things about doing it in Erlang. It's like, it's immediate. Like you can actually go in there and see where the problems are and then fix them. Like I remember we had a bottleneck at Latote when I was still there and it was like 10 lines of code that we changed. And then just the bottleneck went away. It was like such a tiny, and it was immediate and it was in our code and we could just go fix it. You know, nice. and it was like, it was so nice. It was so nice to be able to do that. And even at Bleach Report, like, which has way more scale, just way, way, way more scale. So many of our bottlenecks are just like self-imposed things that we did or just configuration changes that we need to make. Like Ectopool, like the default Ectopool size. Like we have to crank that thing way, way higher than its default is. The default's way too low for, for, for our use cases. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, there was one point we felt like I forgot to do that with like a new service. And I was like, why in the world can we not get this much traffic through? Luckily, we have like all these metrics and traces. And it's like, oh, right. Yeah. Forgot to increase the pool size. Oops. <laughs> yeah, you go fix it, and then you're like, oh, sweet. Okay, we can handle it now. That's one of the great benefits about doing this in this runtime is that you do get access to these tools. And then, yeah, you get to start to have this like fine-grained control over, like, what am I going to do when this thing fails? Like, how can I fail over? And how can I build something that's like really resilient to be able to handle this? That's like the real magic part to me. Because uh, you just have all those tools like really immediately available for you to be able to take advantage of. And yeah, I mean, like I said, saturating the box, that's really hard. And you have to find ways to to do that. One of the things that this is not a, it's like a decent surrogate, but it's not super useful. But if you just want to like tax the CPU to see what happens when, when you run out of CPU, I wrote a little C utility that just like does floating point math in a tight loop. Oh, nice. <laughs> and it's just to like use as much CPU as possible. Or like you could calculate primes or something like just do, just like mine bitcoin i don't know like do something that sit I mean, there and like use your cpu it's a bad surrogate for that because it's not a real test of it, it's like testing a different it's just testing what happens when the cpu is utilized not like what happens when like the beam is saturated with processes or something like that like right right but not only are you checking the real resiliency of your system but you're also increasing the size of your bank account that's true yeah as long as bitcoin still has is worth money i don't think it's worth <laughs> much anymore oh yeah so that's too bad yeah <laughs> <laughs> still just gonna hodl to the grave <laughs> nice. ride that roller coaster all the way back down i really want to keep this conversation going but i can't do that all day today i'm sorry that's too bad well next week we can talk about elixir yeah yeah <laughs> let's find something to talk about i think uh, we, we did <laughs> it's elix- elixir adjacent that's right as always I'm going to convert this into the world's best pimento cheese barbecue podcast. Mm, I think that might be the title of the show. Nailed it. Nailed it. All right. (laughs) Thanks, Chris. Have a great day. Talk to you later.